from a secret location in room 100 of 540 Jack Gibbs Boulevard, this is Craft. I'm your host, Doug Dangler. On today's show, I talk to four people at the top of their craft. We'll hear from a renowned NPR reporter, a writer who's created a new kind of American memoir, a writer-actor who guest-starred in an iconic Seinfeld episode, No Soup For You! And one of my favorite comics, Making a Return Visit. First up, Koki Roberts. Koki Roberts has been a news analyst for ABC News, co-anchoring This Week with Sam Donaldson, as well as for NPR news programs. She's written two New York Times bestsellers, Founding Mothers and the Ladies of Liberty. And she returns with a new book, Capital Dames, The Civil War and the Women of Washington, 1848-1868, stories of women who helped shape the early years of the United States. Welcome to Craft, Koki Roberts. So nice to be with you. Thank you. So in the writing of this book, who were some of the people that surprised you the most? A lot of people surprised me uh, because the way that uh, women's lives changed in the course of the the war uh, was really very similar to World War II. And so um, you you just don't expect in reading about women in the middle of the 19th century to have them be so uh, prominent. Uh, For instance, a very young woman named Anna Dickinson addressed a joint session of Congress and, you know, had the Speaker of the House on one side of her and the Vice President on the other, as the President does when he gives the State of the Union address. And uh, she was considered a a, a very uh, important orator, even though she was 21 years old. So you have surprises like that. You have the surprise of Dorothea Dix having uh, a room set aside for her in the Capitol from which to lobby because the, uh, the Senate found her so influential that they gave her a room. And then you have the women who were the political uh, wives, daughters, sisters uh, before the war who were always engaged in politics and interested in politics, but becoming activists uh, as a result of the war. So becoming suffragists or becoming crusading journalists uh, or, or social service or organizers. So it, it's, a, it's a very, very fascinating uh, look at, at history. As you were writing Capital Dames, what person did you think is most in need of being included in history books? Oh, so many of them. I mean, textbooks are are just awful, frankly. Uh, They make history boring, and uh, which is it's hard to do, but they manage to do it. Um, And uh, um, so many of these women uh, deserve a place in the in the textbooks. Again, I would, you know, even even to the degree that they are in textbooks, like Clara Barton, they're in there for thirty seconds with. And then she founded the American Red Cross. Oh, really? Was that hard? Was did something go before that? Right. Was there any struggle involved? So you know, there's there's they're very barely mentioned at all, if mentioned. Okay. Um, now, Koki Roberts, you've had a distinguished career reporting on Washington, and tell me, given the current fairly partisan climate. Do you see parallels between Civil War Washington and, say, today's Washington that really struck you as you were doing research for this book? Well, unfortunately, yes. Uh, And that's a little bit worrisome because, of course, the partisanship, which was so stark before the Civil War, led to war. 
and uh, 600,000 American deaths. So we don't want to repeat that. Um, but yes, there is a, a similar sort of polarization and regionalism today. The, uh, the one big advantage is that we do not have an overriding moral issue like slavery. If there were such an issue, I don't know how this Congress would be able to resolve it any more than those Congresses were able to resolve the issue of slavery. Okay. Now, because women weren't um, officially allowed to have publicly acknowledged power, uh, they couldn't be elected, for example. What were the most common ways that they were able to in exert influence behind the scenes? You mentioned, say, Dorothea Dix's room in the Capitol where she was advocating. Um, what other ways were they able to make the things happen that they were wanting to have happen? Well, they were very influential with powerful men, and they uh, they had the ears of very powerful men. You know, that's still, I still believe today that the first lady, whoever she is, is more powerful than a female secretary of state, for instance, because it has to do with the relative power of the, of the of the men she influences. And so, in the in these uh, women, they were quite influential with the powerful men. Um, and both both in terms of policy, but also in terms of um, of perks and and privileges. So people would come to them and and ask them to intervene with the men to get jobs or to uh, endorse products or any number of things like that. So there was product endorsement even back then? Oh, absolutely. Very much so. <laughs> what kind of products were they endorsing? Oh, anything from, you know, a, a book or a, a play to candy or um, any kind of product. Could, they'd come to, particularly to the first ladies, but to other um, prestigious women as well and ask them to back their their whatever they were, were manufacturing or producing by hand. Right. You know, when you say that, it reminds me that the beginning of the book, you talk about Dolly Madison and the power that she had um, as one of the unifying forces in Washington. And then after her death is when things sort of became more chaotic because they didn't have a centralized figure to go to. Um, and uh, so it brings to mind the Dolly Madison cakes and pies. Right, but right. I'm, I'm sure and that, ice cream. Yeah, that she had nothing to do with that. Um, you she know. had nothing to do with that, although she did apparently serve ice cream, and, um, and she was famous for that. Right. What kind of background research was the most useful for you as you were writing this book? Where did you find the best information? The best information is the women's own letters uh, and diaries, if they exist, and some of them happily have been published into books. Uh, Elizabeth Blair Lee, whose father, Francis Preston Blair, was a confidant both of President Jackson all the way through to President Lincoln, and uh, he... Uh, her her letters uh, are the, her wartime letters are published uh, as are Verena Davis Jefferson Davis's wife's letters, but by and large they are unpublished letters uh, that you get from uh, university libraries or historical societies uh, who have the men's letters, and then you start asking, well, how about the women? Do you have them as well? And and the answer often turns out to be yes. They just have never been mined or transcribed. Have a lot of those been made, um, say, available online now, where you've got a large push to put things like that online? Have they been scanned and are they available, or do you have to travel to the places that you're still doing the re wanting to do the no. research? 
you don't have to travel anymore. That's a big uh, improvement. The the they have not been scanned, but you can request uh, the institution that you're dealing with to scan them and uh, send them to you, you know, for a fee, and um, and that's a huge help. So I got a great deal from uh, university libraries, particularly uh, that the nice people there scanned for me and sent to me. Uh, the only letters, women's letters, that are online uh, that I know of. Our Abigail Adams letters are online at the um, uh, Massachusetts Historical Society. And Dolly Madison's letters are online at the Dolly Madison Digital Edition uh, done out of the University of Virginia. Two wonderful, wonderful sites. Uh, but for, by and large, these women's letters are not have not been transcribed, so they're not online. Okay. Now, with the kinds of changes, like what you just mentioned on putting things online, do you think that the process has um, led to things being more factual in when people who are reporting on it or is it just easier to do you have less traveling to do what do you see sort of since you started um, being in journalism to something like the book that you've just done what has the process changed well I, I this is my third big history book and the first one uh, came out in 2004 and the process has changed enormously in that period of time first of all people are actually um, responding to requests for women's uh, documents, uh, which at first, you know, nobody even paid any attention to. But uh, the ability to uh, to be able to have everything on computers is is huge. Um, even if they weren't there to begin with, as I said earlier, they are there. You can you can request them, and they will be there for you. But beyond the uh, letters that are that are specific to what you're researching, what is available for everybody and is absolutely fascinating are newspapers. Now there are newspapers online from the early uh, 19th century, late 18th century, early 19th century on. Um, the whole New York Times archive is online, and lots of newspapers from around the country are on websites, one of them free, that the Library of Congress has called Chronically in America, and another one that's paid called newspapers.com. And so you're able to read what the people you're writing about were reading, uh, and you're able to read about them in the newspapers of the time. So that's a huge difference. How often did the reporting of the time clash with the letters that you got that you looked at it and said, well, wait a minute, somebody's really not being honest here, and there's a lot of uh, other things that need to be explored. How often did that happen? Well, there was a lot, I mean, the, the newspapers at the time were not exactly, uh, you know, uh, sticking to the facts. The, the, <laughs> the, um, the newspapers were expected to be highly partisan and, um, and to color things as they uh, wanted them to come out. But you expect that, and you get to know that. But what's really interesting is the descriptions. Um, and what also fascinated me was the fact that these women were written about in the newspapers. You know, uh, even in my childhood, it was the the saying was that a proper woman shouldn't be in the newspapers except when she was born, married, and died. Um, but these women were in the newspapers all the time. Mm -hmm. So... Tell me about the difference you've found between reporting for, say, television or NPR and 
something like a book length exploration of this? I mean, I know it's a much longer process, but do you feel like it's an entirely different kind of uh, exploration for you that you just have to activate a different part of your brain when no, you're going to work on no, this? No, no, I think it's a, it's it's similar in a lot of ways. The difference is that they're all dead. And so <laughs> <laughs> so you can't talk to them. Right. But um but that's got huge advantages because they can't talk back. But the um but that really is the main difference is that you can't interview someone uh, personally, but by reading their letters and their, especially their diaries, um, in some ways it's it's more informational than uh, an interview because they're not able to hide anything. Right, or respond. You or know. respond, I mean, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds. But, all- but but it is. I mean, is it's obviously a lot harder than daily journalism by leaps and bounds, but it's the same set of of skills. And I actually think that that's one of the things that I bring to writing history is the reporter's, uh, first of all, curiosity, but secondly, the the ability to understand the ways of Washington uh, in in ways that some historians really don't get. Mm -hmm. That leads me to a a question that I often ask uh, journalists, and... um, You've got this long, distinguished career as a journalist. Would you recommend the field to your children or to your grandchildren or to uh, people coming out? What does it look like to you now as opposed to, say, when you started? Oh, I I would always recommend it. Uh, My daughter actually was in journalism for a good while, and my daughter-in-law is now. Uh, So it has not been something foreign to my family. Uh, Now, my daughter did decide to leave the field, partly because um, she wanted something that was more steady, but partly because she was somewhat distressed by the 24-hour nature of the uh, the push to report all the time, and not to uh, the push to be able to to produce all the time, but not necessarily to report as as thoroughly as you should. Mm-hmm. And I think that that did have some effect on driving around. But look, the biggest problem in terms of recommending it to to young people is the question of resources you know every the news organizations are having so much trouble making any money uh, or in the case of NPR uh, uh, getting donations that it's very hard to pay people decently to do the kind of work that they want to do okay well let's end on a um, more upbeat note maybe <laughs> and tell me about the favorite story that you've found when you were researching this book, the one that you like to tell people most frequently, say at uh, parties or something like that? What's what's your, your go-to story about this book? I actually never have a go-to story because I always find different people so interesting in different ways. But I do love the fact that the women's letters are so frank and fresh and funny and not couched in all kinds of pomposity as the men's letters usually are. <laughs> the um, but So you have Verena Davis, for instance, writing to her mother that Stephen Douglas, the senator from Illinois, smells bad and that she's really glad that a new water system's coming to Washington so he might wash more often. Now, you don't read that in the men's letters, and it's great fun to read these very frank female letters. Right. Well, Koki Roberts, I thank you very much for talking to me today, and I wish you all the success with Capital Dames. Thanks so much. Nice to be with you. You're listening to Craft on WCBE, Central Ohio's NPR station. While Koki Roberts searches for the truth of a situation and sometimes finds humor in it, observational comedian Aaron Foley finds the humor in the truth. 
with her own Comedy Central Presents special appearances on Conan, Premium Blend, and Chelsea Lately, along with roles in Curb Your Enthusiasm, NBC's Go On, and the film Almost Famous, Erin Foley has enjoyed a very successful stand-up career. Add in her creation and hosting of the sports analyst podcast, Sports Without Balls, and her appearance at the September 3rd through 5th Arch City Comedy Festival, and Erin is a very welcome return guest to Craft. Welcome back, Erin. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's good to talk to you again, Doug. You've got a new CD, uh, Lady with Pockets. Tell me about uh, recording for that and getting that out into the world. Yeah, that was really fun. Um, you know, it's one of these things when you do stand-up that you just have to be really disciplined and motivated because you could use the same jokes for 10 years. I mean, I would throw myself off the balcony if I had to say the same jokes um, over 10 years, and that's not being dramatic. Uh, so you're just constantly writing, and then you hit, a, you hit a point, I think, where you go, all right, this feels like about an hour. Um, and you you, you want to do the material, also want to kind of retire the the you know, maybe they kind of feel like a little bit like you're outgrowing them or something. So then you're like, all right, let's do an album and then, uh, you know, get it into the universe and then work on the next one. So it was, uh, it was really fun because I recorded at the Hollywood improv packed house one take, which I probably wouldn't do again, but it was, but it was great. It was, uh, and that's like my home club in LA. So it was super special. That's gotta be, uh, sort of unusual, isn't it, to do it in one take? Because I, I think, like, I've seen a lot of comedy albums where they'll say, record it over, and they'll give, like, a week um, yeah. in L.A. What made you think one take? I mean, you just, it, you walked off and thought, that's it? That's that's the one we're using? Well, I thought, it, it was an 8 o'clock show on a Saturday night. Um, it was sold out. I had a really good sound engineer. And I thought, how badly could this go? Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I, I wasn't worried about my performance. I was, I was just thinking to myself, okay, like it's about an hour. I know these jokes, like the back of my hand, everybody that's coming in to 20 to 30, um, you know, 220, 230 people, like they like me, like, you know what I mean? Like they paid for a ticket. <laughs> um, let's just, bang this out you know and uh also um rooftop wound up distributing but uh this album will be the that'll be the last time like the first two albums i did myself right so you know you want to do it like cost effective and uh i just thought well let's just do this and it was fine it was totally fine and i also thought <laughs> i could just if something didn't work i could just do it over you know like it's right. everything you know what i mean if you know so, um, you know, there were things I, I was super happy with it. Uh, the next album I'll definitely do in a theater. Hopefully someone will pay for it. Uh, but I was really, I was really pleased. It was a really, it was a really great night. Is the, you want to do the next one in a theater because it's a different quality of sound that you get out of it? Is that it? Or, or the audience reacts differently? I think you get spoiled when you start performing in small theaters because everyone's like, there's just like the bar is raised there. It's more of a show. There's no check spot. There's no clanking of drinks. There's no, um, you know, it just, it feels like theater. It feels like a, right. like a really super professional, um, you know, it, it's sort of like everything's elevated. And I think by your third album, everything should be elevated. So, um, that's an, that's the next plan. So you've been doing some other things, uh, lately. I, I, 
we heard, caught your podcast on uh, competitive erotic fan fiction. And uh, this, I think the setup is you come in and you get a uh, an audience suggestion for a topic and then you write something on that topic. How long do you get to write it? Oh, my God. It was terrifying. I feel like I already have like post-traumatic uh, was it, flashbacks. Uh, I think maybe we had 15 minutes. Mm. Um, wow. Yeah, 15, 20 max because – Basically, uh, yeah, it's my good friend Brian Cook. We were, at the, I think, we were at the festival in um, uh, Indiana, Bloomington, the Limestone Comedy Festival, and uh, you know, you just do each other's shows. And Brian's like, "Do this competitive erotic fan fiction." I was like, "Nope, that's out of my comfort zone." He's like, "Don't be ridiculous." I was like, "All right, I'll do it once." And uh, and so people prepared pieces. So at the very top of the show. Uh, the people that don't have uh, prepared pieces that are sort of improvising it, like writing it on the fly, you get a topic from the audience, and a re- and then you can say no like once, right? Because sometimes these references are s- like super nerdy sci-fi, and I'm like, I got nothing, you know. And so I said no to something or something gross or whatever. So I said no to something, and then it was Veronica Mars and like something else and I was like and the audience clapped really hard at Veronica Mars now I live on like sometimes I live under like a pop culture rock right so I was like I know I I know who that is but I've never seen it I have no reference but I think it was the bet you know the best of um two choices so so then the show starts of prepared pieces you go down into the basement of the theater (laughs) And you have 15 minutes to write this piece. And I spent a good five of that trying to get Wi-Fi to Google who the hell Veronica Mars was. <laughs> and it That's was nice. It was like one bar. You know what? Like, you know, you have access to every piece of information 24 hours a day, except for those four minutes when you need it. And uh, I was then I stuck, I like went outside the theater to try to get some, some Wi-Fi to get like the name of the town. Is she a PI? Is she a cop? I, I mean, I had no idea, you know? Mm-hmm. So you're frantically writing down some basic details. Um, so you can, you know, just kind of nerdily keep a through line. And so I was like, okay, she's got to solve a crime. Um, and then I just, you know, make her gay. Cause it's just fun. Uh, cause I'm gay. And, uh, you know, through that spice in, cause it has to be like erotic fan fiction, which is when you grow up like insanely Irish Catholic, like forget it. That's like your worst nightmare. The word erotic is just like, <gasps> like, it's just horrible. So it was super outside my comfort zone to put it that way, but I sort of pull it off. Maybe. I don't know. I did Wait, it. You know, one of the funny things I noticed with that is, um, you, you seem to have more uh, on that one than when I've seen you in concert. I don't recall uh, you're using uh, as many curse words. And I thought that it's funny that you said you seem to be out of your comfort zone because I thought she's usually not like that. No, <laughs> you it know? Was like and I said, everybody's, everybody's pieces were so dirty and right. foul. And so I was like, and I was hearing some of them because I listened to the podcast like when I was flying from LA to Bloomington. I was like, oh, all right. I knew I was doing the show. I was like, I've got to listen to some of these stories. And then I had a panic attack, like mid, you know, United Airlines, because I was like, oh my God, like this is just filth, you know, (laughs) which does not, I don't, my brain doesn't work like that. And so I was like, oh God, I've got to like, just, I don't know. 
curse it up. Swear. Yeah, right. Yeah. It, you know, it was uh, um, when I saw that you were on it, I thought, well, that's really an interesting thing. I want to listen to it because I've listened to it once or twice, and the, the folks that are on it, um, it doesn't seem like the same kind of stuff that um, I've heard you do. Yeah, uh, it's the exact opposite. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think it's great that you're throwing in, you know, when you grow up Irish Catholic, so that you could yeah. just blame it on being Irish Catholic. I would have, um, you know, bet if I were on a, a show like that, I would probably say it was growing up, you know, uh, vaguely German-American, where, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I wouldn't, I, I, I tried I one time as a bet to write uh, erotic fiction. And um, I found that I could not do it. Yeah. I was completely unable. And so I, I, as you were describing this, I thought, yeah, I've, I've had that experience. It's not something that I could do. But it is also an interesting moment outside your comfort zone. So, Yeah, I just thought, you know, and then, you know, it went pretty well. And so then Brian sucked me in again at the San Francisco Sketch Festival in January. And I was like, okay, it was just too much of a panic. I'll do a prepared piece. And I did Nancy Drew. And um, that went over like, eh. And I was like, I'm going to retire. And then I'm done. I'm totally done. Okay. Um, but, uh, you know, you have to you have to push the limits. Well, you know, uh, uh, detectives and erotic fiction, you know, they would just never go together, right? No. <laughs> As you're preparing for this next album, are you finding new things that you want to be talking about in the act that change uh, the process of writing for you or the comedy? Yeah, I'm not sure about the change of process of writing. You just get, you know, you get more confidence to kind of push the envelope and be maybe more personal or, um, you know, talk about maybe some more politics or religion or, and, uh, it's one of those things where like, these are your opinions. These are your, this is your sense of humor and then you'll find your audience. You know, it's not for everybody, but, uh, I do think that, um, yeah, it's sort of like, I don't know. I think everything I do now, it didn't start out like this. My first probably five, six years of my career was super observational but then when maybe year seven, when I talked about being gay on stage for the first time, it sort of opened up this world of um, talking about relationships, you know? And, you know, I always say, like, gay, straight, it's all the same crap. It's just my relationship with, you know, another human being. And so I think I tap that and, you know, I tap into that a lot more and, um, you know, just, you know, yeah, a lot more. I'm, I guess I'm just not afraid anymore to like really talk about what's happening in my personal life, you know, which is, which is always like, you know, I feel like at this point you can kind of make anything observational funny, but when you're talking about a breakup or your fears or whatever it is, like then it, then it gets a lot more real. But for me, it, that, that gets 10 times more interesting. So right. probably, you know, that. when, when you talk about that, it reminds me of like, if you're going to date, uh, whoever dates Taylor Swift knows that at the end of it, she's going to write a scathing song. Exactly. Is exactly. that, you know, do you, <laughs> do you have that fear that uh, people will uh, not want to be in a relationship because they, you know, something like showing up in the stand-up act? How do you balance that uh, with somebody? Well, you know, if, 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 if something happens, like if I'm dating someone and something happens that I think is hilarious that she did or she said, I will clear it and it will never be anything embarrassing or super personal or right. anything like that. It'll just be like, um, 
you know, just something just funny that everyone can relate to, you know? So that I, that I have a super boundary with that. I would never make anyone feel uncomfortable. Um, however, (laughs) if we, and even in the breakup, even in the breakup, you know what I mean? Um, but I, I do think there are some sort of, there's always things that you happen during a breakup, um, where you go, okay, well, that wasn't the best thing ever, you know what I mean? And you kind of like, kind of put it in this bubble of, uh, you know, I wish that didn't happen, you know what I mean? But it's never going to be anything like, this person is disgusting, she's all, you know what I mean? Like, because that's just not my thing. But um, there is stuff, there there are interesting exchanges in the heat of the moment or... um, you know, I would never name anyone or anything like that, but just, you know, after a while you have a bunch of relationships and, uh, you know, you can kind of use them generally to be like, okay, I don't want this. I want that. I don't want this. Right. Yeah. I, uh, I I think that's a really great way to look at it. I've been, um, in with the same person for going on 27 years. So there's really nothing that I can say that she won't (laughs) say immediately, wait, no, you can't because we've been, I know you, yeah, um, exactly. and and I'm usually the one doing a lot more of the screwing up. So <laughs> if I were to do this, it'd be... the last thing I wanted to ask about is the area that I know the least about. As I may have mentioned before, you have a terrific podcast called Sports Without Balls, and uh, how is that going for you? What are your latest uh, takes on the sports world right now? You know, it's been I've been on this you know three week, four week high of uh, women's World Cup soccer, right. and I flew to Montreal. I was doing shows in Toronto uh, two weeks ago. And then I took a train to Montreal and was at the semifinal game for USA Germany. And it was probably my favorite live sporting event uh, that I've ever been to. And I've been to quite a number of sporting events. It was unbelievable. It was the greatest thing ever. We had such a wonderful time in Montreal. I went with some buddies from New York. And um so that's been fantastic. And then, uh, you know, we won it on Sunday and we'll talk about that in the podcast tomorrow, but it's been really kind of women's soccer heavy for the last couple of, for the last couple of weeks. So that's been really fun. Um, my dad watched it and said it was nerve wracking. I got to say that nerve wracking and soccer aren't things that I normally associate with each other. <laughs> oh yeah. I know. mean, you know, the world cups when everything is on the line or the Olympics, it's, it's, I honestly, like, I was saying to a couple of my friends during the final, basically, we went out, you know, when we did, like, a, I say we because I'm a super fan, so I'm part of the team. Uh, they scored four goals in 16 minutes. So the U.S. was up 4 nothing, and, and that was the only probably 10, 15 minutes of the seven games I've watched where I was enjoying myself. I was a wreck. Like, I was in... <laughs> Like we win, we'd win or tie. We we won most games, one nothing, two one. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I, I until the even when the whistle blew, and we won. I go well, you know, we barely won. Our offense looks like crap. You know what I mean? And then I'd spiral out. Aaron Foley, I want to thank you so much for talking to me today about sports, about your comedy, and we, uh, you know, the great comedy that you're going to be bringing September third through the fifth to the Arch City Comedy Festival. Well, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Aaron Foley finds funny in life. That's a six-word memoir. And Larry Smith, the creator of Six-Word Memoirs, is the person to ask about all things six-word memoir, as we do in this talk. 
Larry Smith is the New York Times bestselling editor of the six-word memoir series of books such as Not Quite What I Was Planning and other six-word memoirs by authors, I Can't Keep My Own Secrets. It all changed in an instant. More six-word memoirs by writers famous and obscure, six-word memoirs on love and heartache, and Things Don't Have to Be Complicated, illustrated six-word memoirs by students making sense of the world. He is also the founder and editor of Smith Magazine at smithmag.net, a site dedicated to storytelling from anyone. Welcome to Craft, Larry Smith. So happy to be here, Doug. So six-word memoirs have been described as American haiku, and uh, you've cited Ernest Hemingway's shortest story that goes something like this, for sale, baby shoes, never worn, as part of the inspiration for six-word memoirs. Tell me about how you got started on the six-word memoirs. Well, that's the legend, that Hemingway was challenged in a bar bet, you know, where all good writing stories happened, and right. to write the shortest novel he could, for sale, baby shoes, never worn. Maybe it happened, maybe it didn't. I've certainly tried to figure it out, but unprovable. And, you know, the six-word memoirs grew out of uh, a larger storytelling project I started in 2006 called Smith Magazine, named after my grandfather, uh, a Russian immigrant who was just a wonderful storyteller, and everybody called him Smitty. Uh, so I named it uh, Smith Magazine, Everyone Has a Story, What's Yours?, after this great storyteller, and also the fact that we are all storytellers. We are not all doctors or dentists or AV people, but everyone has a story, everyone can tell a story, and everyone should have a place to tell it. And in the year 2006, that was uh, a little bit of a new idea. Okay. So when you started out on this, how did you uh, get people into doing it? What was your tactic for telling people about uh, um, smithmag.net and bringing them to it? Uh, other authors say that you wanted to write. Sure. So when we started smithmag.net in 2006, the six-word project wasn't even a prompt. So the idea of the site uh, was and is a series of prompts. Uh, have you had a life-changing moment? Put it on this part of the site. Go up to 2,000 words. Did you have a, a crazy breakup? Over here, 1,000 words. A brush with fame, 500 words. You know, did you meet a celebrity like in a hot tub, not at a movie premiere? <laughs> we are just celebrity encounters. And people liked it. Uh, I had no business plan. I got some press and I did some interviews and, and people came to the site. But it wasn't like a quit-your-day-job situation. And after about 10 months, in fact, friends and family, they were whispering, like, how long can he possibly keep this up? This can't be a good business. And it wasn't. But then I got a little bit lucky. Another idea fell through. Uh, it's a long story, but uh, our big breakthrough project, a video blog that the, my in two interns were going to do. They were going to video blog their way across the country. and right. And... And, and meet their online friends. And, and, well, they bailed on day three. So we had a big hole in what was supposed to be our breakthrough project. VH1 was going to watch the project, maybe do a reality TV show. The whole future was dancing in my head until they bailed on day three. So I had this volunteer editor, Rachel, and I uh, back then. And, and we were just tossing ideas around around the, the virtual office, you know, a.k.a. my living room or possibly a cafe. But I think it was my living room back then. Mm -hmm. And what about that, that Hemingway idea? And so we said, well, we're a personal storytelling site. So let's give the six-word novel a personal twist. Rachel Googled six-word memoir. Nothing came up. We popped it on the site. And originally, it was going to be a one-month contest. Can you tell the story of your life in exactly six words? Uh, the winner will get an iPod, which in 2006 was a pretty good prize. Mm -hmm. And I went to the Apple store and bought the iPod, you know? And 
Within days, we had 10 and 15,000 and 20,000 six-word memoirs. People loved it. It turned out the constraint of six words fueled creativity. It didn't stop it. And that we know people want to tell the story of their, of their lives, but when you give them a parameter, it's not so scary. And when you give them a blank page that's filled with six words or many versions of six-word memoirs, right. it's not so scary either. So it just took off. Obviously, we didn't stop it after the contest of a month ended. We started making books, and it just morphed into so many things, uh, which I'm happy to expand upon. Okay. So tell me about the uh, – like at the beginning when you saw 10,000 entries, you – what was your reaction? Did you say, oh, my God, how am I going to go through that? That's 6,000 words. That's a reasonable length of stuff. Well, the first reaction was maybe they shouldn't all come into my personal email <laughs> because I didn't know, you know. So <laughs> the next thing was let's put it on the website for others to see. Right. Um, and another good trick, you said, you know, how do you get it started? How to gain traction, which is, you know, I have a whole lot of tenets of, of how you inspire people to tell stories. And one of them is that actually uh, the storytelling playing field should be a level one. So on this playing field, I immediately asked some of my, my well-known writerly friends, hey, could you share a six-word memoir? You know, people I just knew from back in the day, like Elizabeth Gilbert, who sent one in, me see world, me write stories. And Dave Eggers, who I knew from the Might Magazine days, which some of your listeners may remember, the great the great cult indie 20-something magazine Might, who, who wrote 15 years since professional haircut cut and we threw up uh, we we posted we, we posted you know Dave's and Elizabeth's and a few others so look look at these guys you they get six words you get six words and I think that being part of like this very writerly crowd inspired non-professional writers to to, to tell their stories <laughs> and then eventually we need we had we found a need for curation like nobody wants to go through to read 10,000 six word memoirs or has the time I mean I do actually and you can go through them quickly but okay so now the top six of the day are curated into editors favorites and then the six word memoir of the day is on the site and mm -hmm. we put we post you know some of our favorites to Twitter and Facebook and Instagram every day so so I just kept learning levels of curation for some people to be named the six word memoirist of the day is awesome you know, we, we, they get so excited. And then at the end of the year, we put about a thousand six-word memoirs in a book. And that's another great thing. And, you know, it turns out we don't need prizes. We don't need to give away, like, expensive Apple electronics. We the, just, the, just being told, hey, I like your six-word memoir. Hey, you're in a book. Hey, maybe you'll be mentioned on a radio show. Sure. That's all the carrot people need. What about the sort of rubric that you use? How do you decide? I mean, it seems like with that many, it's a gut reaction, right? You're not, uh, you, you don't have a lot of time to say, I want to compare this one and this one. And this. It, it filters through somehow. Yeah, tell me about that process. It's, it's, and people ask, and I really should figure out what the formula is. So <laughs> it is a gut reaction. Um, I love a six word memoir that tells a story, right? ex-wife and contractor now have house right married by elvis divorced by friday these are stories with a narrative arc you know there's specificity there's real color in these stories there's humor one tooth one cavity life's cruel so much is happening right and many of these stories also beg for a backstory even though these words uh these six word memoirs work in and of themselves as stories so that's one thing um What's interesting, you know, as the, as the project grew, you would see current events would happen. So, you know, the atrocities in Charleston that, uh, of, of late, uh, I can wake up and look at the site before I've heard the news and I'll know what happened because people react to that. Right. And that's, or, or uh, 
Philip Seymour Hoffman dies, and people start writing six-word tributes. Now, that's not wild and like what happens on Twitter, but I feel like, and I love Twitter, and, and they were our first sort of partner back in 2006, which is a whole other story, but the idea that these people who maybe aren't on Twitter or feel like Twitter's just too big and how will their voice be heard, they come to our site, which is popular and robust, but not at that level of Twitter or Facebook, of course, and they feel like they can say something and be part of the cultural story of our day. They can have a voice about Philip Seymour Hoffman, about Charleston, about Ferguson. And then meanwhile, they can just keep sharing their own six-word stories of their lives. Mm -hmm. So let's maybe look at some of those. Uh, you've given several of them so far, but what are, say, one of them, one or two or three, that you repeat the most often, that uh, you keep coming back to as, this is my perfect distillation of language? And I, you know, and I absolutely have them. Some people say, oh, how could you choose? They're all like your babies. But no, I really have some that I come back to a lot. And I'm going to share one with you that is the first six-word memoir in the first book, which is obviously very special to me. And this was someone I know. I don't know all the people in all the books. Obviously, right. that wouldn't be a good book, my friends. But a friend named Robin had uh, emailed me, hey, I, I want to I do one of these six-worders. And she sent me uh, something like, you know, I chose the past le less taken or something like that. And I said, Robin, that is uh, kind of an idiom, possibly a fortune cookie. And like, <laughs> you've had an interesting life. And, you know, we have some of those, you know, common phrases. And that's good right. with people. We want six-word memoirs, especially in the books, that anyone can kind of relate to. They all can't be so deep and intense. Right. But many are. I said, Robin, look, you're, you've had an interesting life. Tell me about your life in six words. She's like, okay, I think I get this. And she emailed back. After Harvard had baby with crackhead. And that's a true story of her life. Mm -hmm. And when we had our first book party, when the book came out and Robin was there and people from around the country came in, it was wonderful. And they were introducing themselves. Oh, I'm Jason. I'm on page 32. And she said, I'm Robin. I'm on page one. And they said, you're Robin Templeton. And they were just like, you know, you were really courageous. And I really appreciate seeing your words about your life. And she's got a wild backstory, obviously. Right. So that means a lot. You've got a new thing going on in for Columbus, Ohio, called Six in the City. And that's at sixwordmemoirs.com slash cbus. That's right. So tell me about this. And so I just moved to Ohio in January with my wife, who's um, here uh, teaching uh personal writing in uh, the Marion Correctional Facility, a men's prison, as well as um, Marysville Women's Prison. And I got here, and I thought, well, this is, this is the place for this idea I've had for a couple of years that's just been kind of brewing, but not to the top of the list, which is called Six in the City. The idea is this. The Six World Memoir Project is about a celebration or an explanation or an emotion about your life, right? And that takes many forms and, and different parts of your life. But Six in the City is a communal experience about the place we live. And, you know, that's so important, the place we live. And Columbus, which is with its enthusiasm and its burgeoning identity and with its openness to new things, was, I was like, this is the perfect place to launch Six in the City. The idea is, as a year-long project, and it could certainly continue past that, but I had this idea of next June being a great, wonderful, big final event that showcases what's happened. And uh, we engage people in Columbus from all over, the different neighborhoods, in schools, at meetups and yoga studios and bars and community centers to share this their six words on Columbus. Uh, the Columbus they feel, the Columbus they want to be. And they'll inevitably and hopefully be area, times when say, hey, let's start with six words and then let's do some backstories. Then what happens? Discussion. Mm -hmm. And, you know, six words, as, as, you, as you noted before, they can work 
as a six-word memoir and standalone, or they can demand a backstory. But also, they really always prompt discussion. And that's what we want, you know? And so... I just see hopefully tens and thousands of perspectives on Columbus, six words at a time, and then many, many backstories and live spaces on video on a digital hub that we're building out now. I think it'll be really interesting. Um, And I had this sort of um, joke in mind that you moved to Columbus because we're much more uh, concise and taciturn than New Yorkers, right? And that's why we'd be better at six-word memoirs. But... <laughs> but um I'm I'm going to be curious to see if that's if you notice a difference, right? Like if there's something different about Columbus because it seems to me to be a community and I'm from uh elsewhere. I'm up near Lake Erie and uh it will be really interesting to see if you notice sort of that geographical, that regional sort of difference uh versus something like New York where where this project got its start sort of. Yeah, it uh, it'll totally be interesting and you know, there's there's a certain, you know, People, New Yorkers and uh, people from the Midwest and certainly Columbus, they're both like, really nice. Like, I, New Yorkers are extremely nice. But there's this sort of, like, intense nicety of New Yorkers, which is like, I will help you. Like, if you're reading a subway map, it's like, no, no, I'm going to help you. Because it, part of it is about, like, showing how smart and seasoned you are as a New Yorker. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, in Columbus, it just seems a little bit more since not sincere isn't the right word, but a, a little bit just more mellow and mm-hmm. and a little bit more about you than about them. So I am curious um, as we ask this question about uh, can you define your city in six words in Columbus? Uh, how, how much will it be about really the city Columbus versus about themselves? So I asked someone to write six words about New York, New York, and I'll give you two examples. Uh, uh, one guy wrote New Yorker, everything pisses me off. <laughs> And and David Rakoff, uh, a beloved writer, you know, who yeah. died a few years ago, actually was, was uh, one of the Thurber winners. His six-word memoir is "Love New York, Hate Self, Equally." It's like a classic New York City six-word memoir. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of the first six-word memoirs I got from someone in Columbus is "Columbus Will Always Bring You Home." That's interesting because there's so much written about, say, Columbus being an amalgamation, right? There's a, the, like for native Columbusites, there are fewer native Columbusites in theory, or what I've heard, than in, than other cities have native people. Like you're, um, you, I think most recently lived in New York, but you're from New Jersey, right? Right. So um, that maybe is, is more similar with New York than, than maybe I think, or just the migration to the cities. You know, I don't well, know. Well, it's I'm interesting. Shooting. We did a kind of a six in the city launch at the Columbus arts festival in in june and we had a photo booth so you came and wrote your six words on columbus and we took your picture then it printed printed instantly and then it went up on a wall so one story about columbus two stories dozens hundreds right it just grew you saw a story of columbus emerging there's a real good microcosm for what i want to happen over the next year but so many of the folks who came by the booth they thought they saw a sign what's your six words on columbus so many people who are moved to walk in and take the time to tell their story and have that picture taken had moved here from somewhere else. Right. So there was a lot of came to visit, call it home, you know, uh, uh, former New Yorker, now a Buckeye. Those, though, they were so proud to have come and stayed that they had to get that story out. So that was really interesting. Mm-hmm. And there was great stuff about like, um, we love the weather here in Columbus as it, you know, poured, you know, Dan Rain. And, you know, great stuff about, um, you know, uh, I think one of the ones I wrote about, one of my first ones about Columbus was, 
North Star, Jenny's. This town is tasty. <laughs> I, I frequent both of those places quite a bit. Right. Okay. Well, Larry Smith, I thank you so much for coming to talk to me today and filling us in on the, the Six in the City project and the Six Word Memoirs. And the site is sixwordmemoir.com and sixwordmemoir.com slash CBUS. That's right. Six in the City variant from uh, Columbus, Ohio. So, again, thank you very much. And uh, we'll have all that on the website and have a you know, great day. Doug, it's a pleasure to talk stories with you. Thanks so much. Allie Wentworth was a cast member of In Loving Color, played Schmoopy in the Seinfeld Soup Nazi episode, and created, wrote, and executive produced the television show Headcase. Her film credits include Jerry Maguire, The Real Blonde, Office Space, and It's Complicated. She's the New York Times bestselling author of Allie in Wonderland, and she's recently released Happily Allie After and more Fairly True Tales. Welcome to Craft, Allie Wentworth. Hello, Doug. Tell me about the new book, Happily Allie After, and more fairly true tales. It, uh, I think, outlines your self-improvement quest for parenting, relationships, fitness, and, and dieting. Oh, God, that sounds like a very serious book. That is very serious. It is my personal uh, journey to try to make me more Allie 2.0. Meaning, I turned 50 and thought, oh my God, what is the back nine of my life going to look like? And it's sort of my unhappiness project. (laughs) So I tried to live my life by inspirational quotes, but kind of failed miserably. And I tried to kind of look at marriage and tried Botox and spray tanning and exercise for the first time. And, you know, so it it was all about kind of looking at, as I said, the back nine of my life and thinking, okay, where can I improve? Where can I be better? You know, and I read all these self-help books and they just made me really depressed. Right. So this is my own personal journey, Doug. And it's a humor book, so don't take it seriously. Right. When you describe it as Botox, spray tanning, and exercise, I'm going to assume that that's that's humor and following up on the uh, first book you wrote, Alley in Wonderland. You're a frequent tweeter, and uh, I think that partly the book was inspired by, as you said, some of these inspirational quotes that you were reading uh, on Twitter. Yes. Well, I I worked for Oprah for a number of years um, as a correspondent, and, you know, she was and is the queen of inspiration. So I found this uh, kind of Twitter feed that was every day would give you an inspirational quote. So I would try to sort of live by that inspirational quote and in some cases did very well and in other cases failed miserably um you know i i tried to embrace every stranger as i would a loved one however there was a a guy in my apartment every day a workman who defecated in my personal bathroom every day and i could not embrace him with the arms of love no matter how Mm -hmm. much i tried so you know Some worked, some didn't, but it's all, you know, this crazy journey. Okay. And uh, so on Twitter, people have been responding to you about your book and uh, really enjoying it and repeating some of the inspirational quotes uh, on page 199. Every year I loathe young people even more. So uh, tell me about some of the, uh, you know, the writing of the book and uh, the the creation of quotes like that sort of go off on, like, even if you took a very simple inspirational quote, like, hang in there, baby, um, 
you know, it sort of leads you into other things. And so these are just the, the quotes that people are repeating are things, they're my own kind of revelations in my own life. And that was one of the things I've learned, that right. the older I get, the more I loathe young people. Um, just because of their <laughs> supple skin and their idealism. <laughs> you know. Right, yeah. all the things I, that and people I, you hate. You know what? I yeah. completely get so. <laughs> that sentiment of, you know, life is wasted on the youth. I get it now. I wish I could go back in time with all the knowledge I have. Okay. What would be, uh, uh, maybe this relates to the book, but what's one of the things that uh, as you go back you would really change? I would I would have paid what, more uh, attention in school. Just one example actually, of that. I actually, you know, you kind of, particularly in college, you don't, you, you know, you're so focused on so many other things like your social life and everything that like some of the film classes I skipped or slept through, I wished, or the English lit classes, like I really wished I paid attention because now <laughs> when I read, you know, books, I think, God, I remember I took a whole class on Jane Austen. <laughs> I wish I, you know, wish I was part of that group discussion and didn't pretend I had the mumps for six weeks. So, you know, education, um, you know, a lot of the things that you uh, sort of dwell on or fester, when you get older, you just go, oh, it's just such nonsense. I can't believe I lost sleep over that or I got upset about that or you know, I find myself with my 12-year-old daughter who gets, you know, really upset about middle school, like, social issues. And I just want to say to her, oh, it doesn't matter. You're not going to care. But at the time, you know, it's her life. She cares. But, you know, that kind of thing. You kind of, you know, at this point in my life, certainly when it comes to friendships, I, like, I don't, I don't, I just don't have time for acquaintances anymore. You know what I mean? I like to go in and go deep now with friends. So, you know, there's, there's a little bit of, you get to a certain age and you just, there's no, you can't waste time. Okay. So, as you said, you, you've got uh, two children and you're writing this book. Did you find yourself dispensing some of the wisdom from the book back to the kids, maybe in, in different forms? Was that something that uh, you brought back to you? The family, as I think, if I were writing this, I might oh, be definitely. tempted to share with my kids. Definitely, and I write, you know, kind of, I write humorous stories that kind of um, portray that. You know, I, I write a story about how my husband is just the worst driver in the world, and he, he my kids were about to have their first surfing lesson, and my husband, there's no other cars around, but he managed to hit the pickup truck of the surf teacher, and you know, I was so tired of yelling at him for being a bad driver that I actually got my kids all riled up, got in, sort of manipulated them to yell at him. <laughs> and I realized through all of it that, mm -hmm. you know, there's just no re like, okay, he hit the, you know, he's a terrible driver. If that's the worst I can say about my husband, then, you know, I'm pretty lucky. So the, the, I use sort of storytelling as a way to, um, to kind of show those things, kind of show those lessons to, to, you know, the reader as well as my own family. So as you're uh, doing this, what is your process for it? What are the, how do you, do you set aside a particular time each day to write? Is it more inspirational? Is it more well, on my the fly? Process how did the is, book get created um, happily alley after? 
is is embarrassing because I have to. There's all these rituals I have to do. Like I have to have two cups of tea, and I have to make sure that my where I write, which is in my bed, is neat. And then I have to go online and read every, you know, everything from Huffington Post to you know JCrew.com. I mean, it's it's four hours of preparation for about two hours of writing. I wish it were more interesting, but it's not. <laughs> how does the Huffington Post and J, and J. Crew? How do they prep you for it? Is that getting into a certain headspace of um, the kind of writing that you're interested in, or is it gaining more of the zeitgeist? Oh my gosh, that you think that I'm so about? much deeper than I am. It's basically, um, I I just it, <laughs> yeah, it's total procrastination. procrastination. But sometimes, if you if you kind of read, you know, whatever it is, and I, I, I'll read anything, you know what I mean? Like, I'll go on my kid's Instagram that takes me to other, you know, to strangers. And I just look at what, you know, they're posting kitty cat pictures. But somehow, eventually, that does get incorporated into my writing because I'm very descriptive. So, um, as you know, the more I kind of see and read and stuff, it, it comes out in ways that I'm not necessarily conscious of, but, but it comes out in description. You know, I have a, a story that starts with, I hate Kendall Jenner. And it's, it's, it says, I hate Kendall Jenner. I don't know why I hate Kendall Jenner, because I guess I'm supposed to hate Kendall Jenner. And it goes into a whole story about how, you know, we just automatically hate or supposed to hate or, you know, and then... I finally met her and she was lovely, but, you know, so that, that kind of thing, I don't realize consciously that it has um, seeped into my subconscious and comes out in various ways. Allie Wentworth, I want to thank you very much for talking to me today. Thank you. About the book Happily Allie After and More Fairly True Tales, which is now out and uh, the last I saw was number eight on the New York Times bestseller, so congratulations on that. Thank you so much. For more information from my guests, visit www.crafttheshow.com. This is Doug Dangler. Until next time, be creative.